Welcome to On the Record with Furniture Today, a podcast that goes behind the headlines to look at the news and the newsmakers, the people and the personalities that give the furniture industry its unique flavor. I'm your host, Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Furniture Today's On the Record podcast with your host, Bill McLaughlin, sponsored by Klausner Home Furnishings. If you're looking for the inside scoop about industry trends and the stories behind the news, you've come to the right place. Let's listen in and find out what Bill and his guest have in store for us today. Now, here's your host, Bill McLaughlin. Welcome to On the Record. My guest this week is Christian Rohrbach, Senior Vice President of Sales and Merchandising at A America. Christian, welcome to the On the Record podcast. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. Um, you and I, this, so people know, this This podcast um, kind of came from a conversation um, you and I were having actually um, at the Mob Museum at IFRA's event about the geopolitics of sourcing. And it was just such a fun conversation. I wanted to have it again so people could listen. Uh, you have traveled extensively. You speak six languages, is it? Uh, I'd, I'd say five and a half right now. Five and a half. Well, that's that's five more than, or, four, or at least four and a half more than I speak. Um, so one of the interesting things we talked about is all of the places that you've traveled, all of the places that A America sources, um, and what it takes for a country to be able to successfully source. It's not everybody. I think sometimes thinks it's just about low cost labor, but there are really a lot of other things that go into it. So just from your perspective, share with me some of the insights that you've gained of, from all of the countries that you source and some of the, the issues that you have to deal with as you try to move sourcing from one place to another. Yeah. Uh, so, Bill, it's it's really challenging at times. And, you know, and anybody who travels to Asia, whether, you know, it's the folks living over there or uh, just doing one or two trips a year, you realize that, that you're so dependent upon so many different entities. And I'm not talking just companies, but actual countries and the relationships that they have and supply chains and, and how they all come together. And it's, it can be very complex. Um, and that's I, I started traveling over there back in um 2005 for the furniture industry and you know that was something that that we learned straight away okay we're in this country and you have to do things this way and you know you have to behave this way and it's 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 not just it's not just uh, business as usual over there and you know so the culture shock first and foremost but but then the the other challenge is how fluid everything is and how things can change with different administrations and how they react to our administration and so that's been probably, you know, one of the things that that we try to look at a lot here in America, um, be it that we are so dependent upon the supply chain, and we feel we've done a great job with doing that. Give me an example of one of those cultural nuances that, and maybe, you know, if you have a funny story about something you learned the hard way, an accidental insult, or, uh, but if you can just kind of give me an example of one of those cultural nuances, the things that you've learned traveling um, throughout Asia. Yeah, so one of the things that really struck me first early on was was when I was in China. Um, we were doing business at a factory called StarCorp, and I think a lot of folks will know who they who they were. And there was a time when we really needed to to get straight to the point on some pricing. It was very urgent, and uh, you know, and we did, and we got straight into this conversation with uh, with their ownership, and and you know, it it didn't go well. And we couldn't figure out what had happened. And, I, and long story short, we were simply too direct with them. Um, 
you know, they, the owner was insulted that we didn't want to drink tea and, and have a, have a chat and whatnot. And things have changed, you know, and that was probably a bit of an old school situation, but, um, but we learned from that, you know, you, you have to value the relationship a lot over there. And it's, it's very important to, to, you know, kind of slow down a little bit. Um, another thing is lunch. A lot of times over there, you know, we'd want to work right through lunch and we don't need that, but you don't work through lunch over there. You have to really slow down and, and, um, you know, they want to stop and talk a little bit and, and really get to know you. And so it, it, there's, there's that, and it, it's easy to learn. I mean, it's something that's, it's just a human value, but, but I think that sometimes on, uh, on the, in the West, we, uh, you know, we're, we're so ultra productive at times that uh, we forget that. And so, so that was probably one of the first things that I learned over there, you know, rather quickly. Yeah, that seems to be something that's somewhat unique to the American culture, because I've heard people even in Europe talk about that kind of unique American focus on constant productivity um, and using every moment of every day for some productive purpose. Yes, definitely. We don't seem to relax well in this country. Definitely. And uh, yeah, you're right. And, and Europe is is not quite as extreme as us. But, you know, but, but it's different over there. I mean, because you'll, Americans, you know, we do tend to, at nighttime, we all kind of go our separate ways and, and go back to our families. And it's it's very quiet here. And I think that's one of the complaints you'll hear about when, uh, when folks come from the factories over to the U.S. And, you know, they'll say it's so quiet at night here and it's kind of boring. Um, whereas over there, you know, they tend to work later at night and they'll go to dinners and whatnot. So, so yeah, it's just a, it's a total different, it's a culture shift, but it's still a lot of fun. Now, I think sometimes when people talk about the Far East, um, you know, whether it's Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam, China, um, for, for people who are uninitiated and have not traveled extensively, there's, there's a tendency to lump them all into the same basket. And the cultures there and the, those countries are each very individualistic and very unique, aren't they? Absolutely. Yes. And, you know, and, and that's, that's another thing you have to be cognizant of because they all have uh, not only the, you know, the way they perceive themselves, but also uh, the way they perceive each other. And that, that can lead to great complexities and, uh, and, you know, even problems. Give me an example. What do you mean? Um, okay. I mean, obviously the one, the one right now that, that everybody's been kind of a hot topic for the past, uh, well, it's been a hot topic for, for a few decades, but it's really become big in the last decade is, uh, the South China Sea and the situation, um, you know, there's multiple claimants to the Spratly and Paracel Islands there, which is, you know, just bunches of islands, very small atolls and whatnot in the South China Sea. And obviously China is the largest country, uh, claiming the entire area. And we all source a lot of Vietnam who also claims the area. Um, that led to a lot of complexities. I remember, I think it was 2013, we were at a factory and everybody just bolted out of the factory. And uh, it was, it, you know, we didn't know what was going on. And word came out that China had moved an oil rig uh, into Vietnamese territorial waters uh, around one of the island groups. And so obviously this caused just widespread rioting. And originally it was only supposed to be riots, uh, you know, according to, to our local team. They said it was only supposed to be at Chinese factories, but then it spread to Singaporean factories and, you know, Taiwan, Taiwanese factories and Korean factories and Japanese factories. And it pretty much when any foreign factory had riots, um, you know, and I think a lot of folks remember this over there. Um, you know, we were told to get in the car, get back to town because they might start going after um, 
you know, anybody, um, we, we weren't sure how far it would go. And so we had a couple of Chinese nationals with us on our team at the time as well. So obviously, you know, we, we hightailed it back to uh, District 1 there in Saigon um, to get back to the hotel. But, you know, we for about a day, we didn't know how far it would go, really. And, um, you know, we, we went to the airport the next day, and we were scheduled to fly out anyway. But it almost looked like, you know, from a movie where you see the, the mass exodus of the foreigners trying to get out of the country. Um, there were there were and tons of factory folks there, um, you know, finishing company guys. Um, everybody was trying to get out because, they again, they didn't know if it was going to be, you know, escalate to a further extreme. Uh, fortunately, it didn't, but that was very disruptive. Uh, you know, several factories were were vandalized pretty badly offices and whatnot so but they seem to recover from it um you know we learned but that sort of thing can always uh rear its head you know you you look at a situation a similar one that i fortunately wasn't around from the time in the 90s uh indonesia what happened there um in the mid 90s and that was a concerning uh situation as well uh, you know where where a lot of disruption of business and and you know even more unfortunately loss of human life so I think keeping keeping up to date on this stuff is uh, is massively important. Um, and right now we all see, you know, we've all been talking and we still are about the coronavirus, you know, and how this is affecting us. So it's not just political situations, but, you know, it could be just about anything. And, and anything that disrupts the supply chain is, is something you want to keep on top of. So. Speaking of which, we've been talking to people about that extensively. We've heard about a lot of folks canceling trips, um, a lot of concern about impacts on the supply chain. Um, and it seems like the situation changes almost daily. I mean, given where you're sitting right now, what's in your uh, in your uh, perception? What is the current status of things there? And do you see things opening up anytime soon? Yeah, I so I, I was over there for SARS um, in a different before I was in furniture. I was uh, I was in China um, during the SARS situation, and so I remember very clearly. I was in uh, Hangzhou and Shanghai. And uh, so I, I can draw on that experience to, you know, because there are a lot of parallels uh, with what's going on now. But um, it does appear, you know, that, it, that it, I mean, it'll have to peak sometime, obviously. And that's what everybody's looking for right now. Um, I've been talking with uh, our Asia team over there. Uh, we have three people in China right now. And I've been talking with them nightly. Um, you know, they're obviously stuck in their hometowns, uh, but they expect to get out of there and back to the factories uh, by the end of the week. So, you know, obviously the economic impact domestically in China um, is concerning uh, the government there, and they're working very hard to get people back to, to work, but obviously they're not going to do it at the expense of uh, public health and, and possible public disorder. So from our standpoint, you know, we're cautiously optimistic right now. I, I think it's going to peak out soon like SARS did. Uh, back in 03, but, uh, you know, with a similar trajectory. So, but that's what everybody's kind of comparing it to. But um, we all know this, the disruption of the supply chain. A lot of folks can't get back to Vietnam or back to Malaysia. Um, components are disrupted. Um, but fortunately, uh, you know, in America, we're, we've been very much on top of this. And our factories are good till, I believe, June with components right now. So, um, and majority of our factories are all Vietnamese in Vietnam. Um, so the dependence upon getting the labor back into Vietnam isn't as much of an issue for us. So that's a good thing. Based on the SARS experience, how long is the are the lag effects of something like this? How long before things return to what we could call normal? Um, I think it'll be 
pretty fast, actually, um, given they're they're much better prepared now on a on a whole. China is much better prepared to deal with a situation like this than they were during SARS. Um, you know, it was nearly, you know, what it's 17 years ago. Um, so there's that. But back, talking about the our industry, the supply chain for us, um, because they're going to be getting back to work, and there's going to be a lot of focus on this, and and they have the ability to to work the you know, long hours and, and get things done quickly. Um, we all, you know, we've all seen the skyscrapers appear overnight in China. So we, we know, we know things can, can move very quickly there if they need to. So I think within six months, this will be an afterthought, um, you know, and hopefully we learn from the situation and, and deal with it better next time. Um, you know, meaning the, the entire, uh, you know, medical system and, and what in, in China, but, but I, I think though supply chain wise by July or August, we should be back to normal. That, and that's assuming that, you know, this doesn't further escalate or there's no crazy mutations or what with the virus. Always a lot of ifs, right? With health situations and virus situations, but. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's not our area of expertise, but you know, I, I'm just drawing on the very limited knowledge that I've acquired through the news that you're probably reading as well. So. Yeah. Um, I, I'm interested in the global sourcing situation because so much attention has been focused on tariffs the last 18 months and the shift of so much manufacturing from China to Vietnam. Obviously, there's no way to take everything that China was doing and moving it to Vietnam. But even before the tariffs were in place, there were starting to be signs that companies were looking to diversify sourcing. Um, from your perspective, aside from you know these these kind of short-term things like the tariffs and the coronavirus, what are you seeing in terms of global sourcing and the evolution of where it's moving, where it might move next? What are the things that people weigh in that process? Yeah, and that's that's. I mean, this is one of the the dominant conversations you know that that we have, you know, whether it's with a you know a friendly competitor in Asia or a valued customer here in the States or Canada um, or anything in between. I mean, we have been having this conversation a lot lately, Bill. And, and this is something that I think it's the short term, obviously, is Vietnam. And everybody's uh, been very quick to move there. Um, you know, we, we like traveling to Vietnam. It's a, it's a beautiful country. Um, you know, it's secondary being Malaysia and Indonesia, of course, and, and they're both awesome in their own right. But Long term, obviously, they don't have the capacity, like you said, to absorb um, this much, you know, this much production um, into those countries from China. And so uh, everybody's looking at alternates right now. Um, I, I read that, you know, that furniture today right now is in uh, Mexico, and I've been following with some of you guys' trip down there, and that's pretty neat. And I think that's going to be a viable option and even further south into uh, Latin America and, and more importantly, South America, you know, Brazil, Argentina. Um, in that area, because they've got massive amounts of, uh, of raw material down there, uh, it's very renewable. The radiata pine, so um, there's a lot of there's a lot of potential, I believe, for that region as well. Um, India's always been on the map and, and will continue to grow. Um, you know, and that's that's something that people are exploring more and more, and, and we're seeing a lot more product out of India. Um, but I, I think the the balance is going to be dictated by China. It's still going to be. Our relationship with them, um, you know, whoever wins in this year in the election for the U.S. president, um, and and what course that president takes towards China, I think will, will dictate a lot of how we move. Now, the the current supply chain will never move, probably move back to China 
in the capacity that was, say, five or ten years ago. It just won't. Um, people are too concerned about it. There's too much risk, uh, in my opinion, in that. Um, but a lot could still move back. I mean, they've got, they've still got these this wonderful infrastructure there in China, um, ready to go, and so and a, and a very large labor force. So it, it's still there's a lot of potential uh, for the country, and I think that'll what happens there will, will dictate what goes on in these other other countries and how much we move to places like Mexico or Indonesia, um, you know, or even like South America. So so that'll be a, an interesting thing to look at because obviously you know things have been pretty. The relationship between China and the U.S. hasn't been great, um, you know, especially economically, for the past say 24 months. Um, but that can turn around pretty quickly. You know, we still have a massive amount of independence or interdependence, excuse me, um, where you know they need us, we need them, and so um, I, I could see a, a reset button being hit here in the next year or so, regardless of who wins the election. When you look at where sourcing moves, you, you in, in referencing a bunch of different countries, you talked about things uh, like infrastructure. You talked to think about things like access to raw materials. Um, but there are lots of other factors, too, that weigh in before a country can become um, a, a legitimate supplier to the U.S. market. I mean, there's, there's certain scale, right? I mean, one of the things that people have told me is that India has terrific artisan production, but getting things at scale necessary has been something of a challenge there. When you assess a country for a potential source, what are some of the things that you look at and, and what are some of the, the positive early warning signs of potential success for a country? Um, so that, that's a great question. You know, we, and we looked at that um, when we went to Indonesia. Uh, back in 2005, the first time, and they had only, you know, they were, weren't even 10 years off of uh, the 1997 situation that they had there. Uh, so that was, you know, it was still still a bit dicey. And a lot of folks said, you know, you guys are crazy for going to Indonesia and and, and don't bother. And it's, you know, it, it's too risky right now. Um, you know, so we did a, we did quite an assessment at the time and and really looked closely into it and pulled in as much of our uh, intelligence as we could on the on the place. Um, we were fortunate enough, we partnered up with some great people and we're still working with them today there. Uh, so that, that was outstanding, but I feel, I feel like the big thing is, is looking at first and foremost, political stability, you know, I mean, and that's assuming that, the, that, you know, they have the population to support you. Um, you know, you're probably not going to get a lot of furniture out of a, a country like Belize just because they don't have enough people there to, to make for a viable workforce. But but, you know, so it's going to have the basics, the raw materials, the, the labor and everything. Uh, stability is the first one, you know, and they, they have to have that um, in place there. And, you know, you saw that with some companies try to go into Miramar and, you know, and they're still dabbling with it. But um, but you've got to have that. If you don't have political stability, then, then you know, nobody's going to want to bother um, making an investment there. So that's probably the biggest thing right, from the get-go. Um, and continue to monitor that because we've seen how quickly the landscape can change in any any country, including our own. So, yeah, the 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 political landscape the last couple of years globally has been very very volatile. It seems. Yes, yes, it's it's got it's become uh, much more insular, uh, you know, much more protective um, of you know individual countries. And yeah, so that is a uh, that has been you know somewhat of a challenge. Um, but but the good thing is though is when you talk with a businessman from Indonesia, a businessman from China, and a businessman from the U.S. or anywhere else, 
generally we all have the same mentality and that's the beauty of, of our business or any other business is that pragmatism always wins. And, and so even though, you know, and, and I, 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 when we spoke a, a couple of weeks ago in Las Vegas about this, you know, we said that it was cool because we, a lot of folks shy away from the political conversation because we are, we are, we're just businessmen. We, we just want to make a profit and, and be happy and, you know, and, and move on to the next thing and have fun. Um, but, but at the end of the day, you know, we, we have to balance it and, and keep our eyes open about this. So, yeah, I, I have one political position. I'm pro furniture. There you go. You and me both. <laughs> really, really very simplistic. I, I have had a senior executive, um, at a, a major global manufacturer talk to me about, um, the, the amount of time that you can source successfully in a country before you start having to look at the next place. And, and I, part of that is if you look at the history of development, I mean, even here in the U.S. and, the, and the, uh, the development of the European economies, typically manufacturing starts where there's low cost labor over time that produces good paying or better paying jobs. You'd get the development of a middle class, wages start to rise. And then at some point, the, the cost of labor becomes such that it becomes time to look somewhere else. And I've had someone tell me that 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 tends to be, in their view, around 10 years before they start thinking, we've we've got to start looking at another location. Would you would you say that's about the amount of time before the the inherent conditions change, or is it a longer time frame? How do you look at that particular equation? Um, that's something where. It, it's obviously going to depend upon the line, you know, and I mean, whether we're looking at upholstery, um, you know, shipping costs come into the, the matter. But as far as just local wages and, you know, inflation goes, um, the averages, I would say, is for us, probably closer to 15 years where um, just looking at the what China has done in the last 15 years, you know, that's you know, my experience of being overseas. Um, but uh, but obviously it, we're a America produces, you know, we're, we're solid wood case goods and uh it's a little bit more of a, of a better end product and so we're not quite as susceptible to the, that price sensitivity um where inflation might squeeze out some lower end uh veneer folks so that it would affect everybody differently but like i was saying earlier with china um you know the, the tariffs aside uh, they still have great solid wood sourcing capabilities uh you know especially in the northeast and, and some of the inland provinces there so so for us, you know, it, it could be even 20 or 30 years. Um, we have a factory in Taiwan we still work with, um, and we've been working with them since 1976. So, you know, just it just it kind of shows, you know, depending, it really depends. Um, obviously, upholstery, uh, large amounts come back to the U.S. domestically because of how much it costs to ship uh, from Asia, and, you know, it's, it's so Cuban-intensive. So that's been something, um, you know, it, again, just have to look at the product, I, I guess. But, but we we are seeing, you know, I mean, obviously China, like I said earlier, it, it's not going to go back to what it was, the heyday of, uh, you know, 2005 to 2010, where it was just cranking and it was the the big juggernaut. So. We hope you're enjoying this edition of On the Record, brought to you by Klausner, the leading solutions provider for the home furnishings industry. If you're in high point for the April market. Be sure to stop by the Klausner Showroom, your one-stop shopping headquarters for everything furniture. Once again, here's your host, Bill McLaughlin.
I, I'm curious to what extent speed to market enters into this equation. And the reason I ask that is one of the places, as you mentioned, we have Tom Russell as, as we're speaking. He's currently in Mexico. And one of the places that we are talking about looking next later this year is in Poland, um, because I we've heard very good things about the, the quality of the workforce there, um, the ability to produce at scale. Um, the, the cost is very effective. But one of the things that people have mentioned is the difficulty of getting product to port and the additional cost that that adds to, to the process. When you think about the Amazon effect and the pressure that that has put on furniture companies to deliver faster, does that weigh in as we look at the, the longer term global sourcing equation? Um, does that weigh into your ability to move to some of these perhaps newer and more remote locations? Is, does that change the relative value of speed? Does speed to market change the relative value of a location based on how quickly you can get product to port or to out of the, the country? Well, and that's, a, that's an awesome question, Bill. And, and you know, this is a fashion-driven industry, as we all know, and fashions change. So I don't know if it's made it more important, uh, you know, the speed wins in this industry, no doubt. Um, and, and so if you've got, you come out with a, a great concept or a good design, not only, you know, the product development side of, of getting it to market in a timely manner, um, but it's also obviously cutting it and, you know, getting it out to, you know, your warehouse distribution centers and, and you know, the customers. Um, but as far as looking at it from a, from a supply chain side, like you mentioned Poland, um, you know, yeah, there's there's huge issues there because right now I think most Polish containers are shipping out of Hamburg, Germany. Uh, so it has to cross the Schengen border, you know, uh, you know, it's still European Union, which is nice, but but that that is challenging and it is expensive. Um, so it's for that uh, to take place. Um, that that said, I, I think countries like Poland or anywhere else in you know Ukraine, Romania, Bulgaria, in Eastern Europe with with solid wood factories, I think some of the higher end guys will be able to source out there. Um, and it could be a, a very worthwhile thing to look into for, for your higher end uh, folks, you know, because right now um, the European companies, uh, you know, the Nordic countries, Germany, UK, France, they've sourced virtually everything out of there um, for their, for their better in Oak Beach and uh, solid birch lines. So, so that, that's helpful. But, but the short answer though is, is I think that if, if it's too far from a major port, um, you know, then then it would be very challenging just with the shipping fees and, and how ocean freight rates have gone up so much recently. So when you from, from a geopolitical standpoint, when you look at China's Belt and Road Initiative, which is an infrastructure driven strategy to connect China more effectively with really most of the rest of the world, does that have an impact on the furniture business? Does that open up new areas? Does it make China more competitive in a way that strengthens their longer-term position and slows some of these trends away from China? What do you, when when you look at that in the context of furniture, what do you think about the Belt and Road Initiative? Um, uh, so, looking at China itself first, you know, and, and sourcing there, um, I, I think it's a double-edged sword, really. I mean, obviously. You know what they, what the Chinese, what Xi Jinping is hoping this does is, is it you know it increases their relations with with neighboring countries, you know, and along the, uh, you know, their the, the trade routes there, and and that would be you know if it improves their economy um, and it works out the way they want it to, um, obviously it's going to be more higher paying jobs and and that'll squeeze furniture out, you know, further squeeze furniture out from what it's already been squeezed to. 
Um, so that that is one side. But the other side is, um, you know, if it doesn't work out like they, they want it to. And, and right now it's it's looking a bit ominous if it's going to work or not. Um, you uh, you see a lot of, you know, African nations, Sri Lanka, um, you know, the, the Central Asia, you know, the Uzbekistan, uh, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan. They've, there's a lot of concern in the local governments there about this and just the, the motives behind it. And so... Um, what the point I'm making is that if China is going to throw a lot of money at this, it might actually hurt their economy um, more than it helps it. Um, rather than investing, you know, this in, in local infrastructure projects, they're basically, you know, giving these infrastructure loans, so to speak, to these these other countries out there. So the impact on the on the furniture then would be, you know, it, it could be in an indirect way positive because it would slow their economy down somewhat. Um, because obviously one of the, the driving forces, um, you know, besides the the tariffs and what. Uh, it's just the, the development of the Chinese economy and labor being harder to source for for furniture factories. So, so it, it's uh, this is a, it's very much a double-edged sword, Bill. I would say you know, and it could it could go either way, but I don't think it's going to have a major effect um, in the near term or even midterm. This is not a furniture question. I just find it kind of historic as a, and and I think you and I talked about sharing this kind of history geek um, mindset. I just find it fascinating the impact that historical trade routes have on the development of modern trade routes. And I wonder sometimes if people realize the impact of history on current events. Yeah, I mean, you, you, look, at, you look at the way, uh, you, I mean, Asia, the, the history, uh, you know, at least written histories goes back thousands and thousands of years. And, and it obviously follows, you know, the development of uh, where settlements were built. Yeah, you know whether, you know where cities developed, developed and whatnot, and so that that is what we're seeing right now um, with um, yeah the this Belt and Road Initiative that, that China is developing. It is part of it is historic, but but you got to realize I mean you know the Chinese are, are the government's very pragmatic, and they're they're developing this you know obviously in a modern sense, but they they did package it I think a little bit of more of a historical move to bring China back to its old glory. Uh, you know, the, the glory days of the Tang Dynasty or what. Uh, but the effect geopolitically, like I mentioned earlier on the that Chinese oil rig back in 2013 that, that caused riots at the factories in Vietnam, um, that's always there, you know, and, and that competitiveness. I mean, because you look at Vietnam in particular, um, it's always a surprise to my American or, or European friends when I, you know, they say, well, they must hate Americans and they must hate French people. And they say, no, actually, French people are considered awesome. They they love to learn French in Vietnam, and and the Americans are quite quite fondly looked at. Um, you know, the, the major competition right now is is with China, and they say, oh, is it because of this this island thing in the South China Sea? Yes, but it's actually it goes back much further. You know, it's it's very it's a long long history, and and you know you could look at that in any anywhere. You know, and and between European neighbors, uh, even South America, South American neighbors. You know, Chile and Argentina. Um, and obviously in Southeast Asia, we have such a deep history um, that that is still prevalent today. And, and it's good to be cognizant of it, you know, because there, there's just topics you don't want to touch over there. And, and like you said, you know, your your uh, political persuasion is that of furniture and mine is too. So so that's kind of the, the way that we take it over there when we're politics come up. Yeah, I think we sometimes forget that there are historic rivalries in Asia that predate the founding of America, um, and the relationships between those those countries 
um, of suzerain and vassal uh, of various kinds that, uh, that go back hundreds, if not thousands of years. Yes. Yeah. And that, and, you know, that's, and it, it'll continue to be, to play out. I, I you know, these, any kind of, uh, you know, uh, abrasion that they've had in the past, it's, it's not going to be worked out um, in the next generation, unfortunately, you know, but, but the beauty of it though, is that, you know, we have our Asia team meeting every, every year in November. We get everybody together. We got people from Indonesia, people from Malaysia, people from Taiwan and, and the, in the mainland and, and Vietnam, of course, when we bring guys from the States, we're all this big group, this international group of people. Uh, it's like 23 folks now we, we get together there in, in Vietnam and we do some kind of fun excursion. And it's so cool to see everybody, you know, we're, we're just all in business together. We're all doing this to, to feed our families and, and understand each other. And these friendships have been formed outside of work where, you know, we have a, a real a real crew that that – supersedes you know nationality or religion or political view or anything it's just we're we're just all there as, as one group of uh, people having fun and, and getting the job done together so so there you know business gives me hope in the future right i think it really does because it can solve so many problems so quickly um as long as you have uh you know prosperity together and and can make it equitable for all parties you know whether it's uh you know, a small team in a, in, a, in a company or, or you know, an entire group of countries working together trying to solve uh, diplomatic or political issues. Well, I think, too, technology is a, a kind of homogenizing force, right? The access to information, the access to knowledge, um, cultures um, through the Internet and through modern communication, just um, it, it is, who is it who said, you know, it makes the world kind of flat. Right. It just uh, yeah. it yeah. shrinks the barriers and it, it shrinks the distances very quickly. Absolutely. You know, and that's and it, it you go to any country over there now. And I mean, it can be even China, you know, where they obviously they use a you know, completely different writing system. But you'll you'll see now, you know, brands and, and people, the way the, they'll use English words and English phrases. Um, you know, people who don't even speak English will, will say stuff and, and you'll kind of do a double take. And how'd you know that? You know, it's Twitter or, you know, Instagram or whatever. So um, it's it's really, really amazing, you know, that uh, how, how that's impacted, you know, with technology, how it's impacted the, the relations around the world. But I, I think it's, it's only going to be a good thing. And we've complained about how it makes our lives busier. But I think, you know, on a whole, it's going to, you know, make it change for the better. Now, I'm, I'm curious, given that you have uh, such a diverse and well-traveled background, how did you, um, to use a term that they used during the Super Bowl, how did you matriculate into the furniture business? Um, yeah, so I, uh, I went after university, um, you know, I, I just had my, my sights set on working uh, for the uh, U.S. government, and I you know, I wanted to learn a few languages and, and uh, you know, I learned Russian and I, I got out of school and, and my father had always been in, in the furniture industry um, long before I was born. And, um, you know, I, I made a few trips to Russia and I, I did some work over there, but he actually, we, we worked on a, on a sourcing trip. The first dabble I got, we were sourcing raw material um, with a factory and I happened to be the, the translator. Um, for you know, and I, I got to know some of the Taiwanese factory guys there in the in the Russian Far East, and it was it was a lot of fun. Um, 
learning that and you know I met up with them in Shanghai a few months later after the new year and got to understand a little bit but I realized that I I really need to learn Chinese uh you know to have have a leg up in the furniture industry and so I I did that and uh one thing led to another and I got involved in running the the Asia side for the company um initially and I ran that for uh 3 years up until about 07 and then I moved back to the states uh for a couple of years and then back to Asia uh, to work on the merchandising role over there. Um, so yeah, it was it was kind of a it was kind of a roundabout way to get into it. Um, you know, when I, I listen I listen to a few of your podcasts, and it's an interesting question. It's interesting to hear everybody's paths as they get in, but uh, but I would say mine was probably a little less conventional than most. A little bit, a little bit. I don't know how many people started in the furniture industry as a translator. <laughs> yeah. um, as I said, I have enough trouble with English, but yeah. Uh, yeah. You're actually in the process of preparing to take on a larger role at A America sometime over the next eighteen to twenty-four months. What's what that? What is that like? And how are you trying to prepare for that? Um, yeah, and that's that's something right now. Um, you know, we're looking at it with my father, and it's uh, it's become something that that I've been preparing for. You know, he claims I've been preparing for all my life, but. Um, it's something you know. It's it's looking at your weaknesses, I think, and and shoring those up, and and trying to make those your strengths. And and I find that fun, um, you know, where I can really focus on on something and and learn it, you know, because it it can be a little bit daunting, you know, if you're not good at a at a certain area. Um, like before, I learned Chinese, you know, I, I spoke Russian and uh, you know Korean, but I need to learn Chinese, and it looked really scary at first. But but once you take that first step, I hate to sound cliche, but it it can become addictive and then you're like, okay, now I'm, I'm getting into this. And, and it can be like that with anything, um, you know, whether it's learning the, you know, the supply chain side, logistics, uh, accounting, whatever. So I've, I've been really focusing on, on bringing up my weaknesses and, and getting to understand those better um, and getting a better grasp of that. So that's going to be the main goal. Um, obviously I'm, I'm based in the U S right now and being involved with sales a lot, um, that was something that, you know, 10 years ago, I was very intimidated by and, you know, meeting buyers overseas and, and, you know, these, these folks. And I, and now it's, I, I really enjoy it. I love getting together with this diverse group of people, um, you know, flying to different parts of the, of North America and, and meeting with major buyers and, and getting to, to find solutions to their problems. It's, it's a lot of fun. So, so that's, you know, that, that's, that's probably the biggest way I'm getting involved right now. It sounds to me like, you have a, a kind of innate desire to learn. I mean, you mentioned, I don't speak Chinese, probably should, let me learn that. And, you know, when you say it like that very quickly in a podcast, like, oh, yeah, I decided to learn Chinese, one of the three most difficult languages for an American to learn, but I just did it. Um, you know, you, you talked about learning about sales. Where does that, that desire or that willingness to continue learning come from? Is that something that you know your father uh, instilled in you? Is that something that you you know your mother was? I mean, where does that come from? It, it, my my uh, my uma, my my grandma, and uh, my father. You know, they the saying they always had was knowledge is power. Um, you know, and that that is as simple as it gets. And you know, they said if you, if you get an education, there's no limits. Um, and and I mean, I I was never the greatest student in the world or anything like that. Um, and I. I and I kind of acquired this this uh, this drive to learn more actually after university, 
um, when I when I really got out into the world and and saw how things work. And you know, it's it's a uh, it's very motivating, you know, to see because you can see when you when you learn a new skill set, um, you know, you can you can understand that and and every every craft that you can master um it, it can pay dividends and and but the biggest one sometimes is the journey itself and, and learning about it so um but but the coolest thing I, I would say though in this industry is the people and you know it's not it's not learning the actual nuts and bolts of it it's it's getting to know all these people and and building these relationships and understanding you know what makes people do what they do and and how to better understand them how to better work together do you think having such broad cultural experience and working, speaking so many languages and, and being involved in so many cultures gives you a, a kind of a leg up in knowing people, even if they're American people? In other words, people of all kinds, that there are translatable um, values or skills that make that a little bit faster or easier for you? Yes. I, I, culturally, absolutely, because um, it, it gives you a broader and, and I say that, I mean, I think that, that a lot of folks uh, who have traveled overseas, you know, you, even if it's just a few times, um, you know, they get a, a good taste of that because it shows you that there's so much more out there than just what we know here, um, you know, here in, the, in North America. But lingu- the language side of things, um, not, as, not as much. They, they say, you know, some folks who speak, you know, uh, Omniglots, they that speak several languages. They'll they'll say that it opens up your mind somehow. But but I'm not sure um, about that. You know, I it's it's really nice to be able to converse in different languages. Um, you know, but and and I really enjoy learning new ones. But but right now, um, you know, I I I'm just I'm learning Spanish so I can talk to my daughter right now. That's <laughs> she's she's learning it in school and and that's kind of my main drive on on the Spanish side. And I'm hoping to have it up and running in six months. But but no, I, I think that, you know, there's great translators out there. Every factory's got somebody. Um, I see a lot of tremendous operators in the industry um, that only speak English, but they're, but they're you know, absolutely amazing. So, so I, I think it's more of a, of a you know, it's, it's helpful, but it's, it's, not, it's not, you know, absolutely necessary. But, but then again, though, I mean, I, I try to promote, you know, if we have designers, we have our, our top designer now travels to Asia a lot. I'm trying to get him to learn the language just because it, it helps just getting – I think it helps understand the culture, you know, which which I just said is is a big thing, and I think that that's a, a really good way to a good gateway to to anybody's given culture is is learning their language, and so a bit of an intangible. I, I can't quite put into words, um, but uh, you know, but but it's it definitely is is helpful with that. Okay, so just a little more on the on the relaxing fun side. As much as you've traveled, favorite place to take a vacation. Furniture country or non-furniture country? Can be anywhere you want. Anywhere I want. Wow. Uh, um, I, I like working vacations because uh, I, I have a, you know, sometimes a tough time separating and I, I, I really enjoy this industry. So I'm going to say, um, probably say Indonesia because I love climbing mountains. Okay. Um, I love going there. It's, you know, you can, they've got some really nice places. You can get up high and, uh, and climb some you know, 12 to 13,000 foot high peaks and, and get away a little bit. And then next day you can get back down and look at some samples. So I would say that. Um, and I, I hope I would, I've never been to South America, but I would love to try to source some furniture down there. So. All right. Place you've never been that you'd like to go see. Ireland. I'm going there in June. I'll let you know. I'll awesome. send you pictures. 
Good. Yeah, I'm I'm half Irish and uh yeah, my mom's side and and I've always wanted to check that place out. I've heard nothing but good things about the the country, so. Now, I hesitate to ask this since you're somebody who likes to take working vacations, but when you're not working, when it's all said and done and you go retire, where do you want to retire to? Boy, you know, I I love it right here in the US of A. Um I really do and and you know, I mean, no matter what's going on or you know, what's happening, we, we have such a good, pragmatic group of people here. And it's no matter where you're at. And I've, I've seen, I've learned a lot about the U.S. culture and, you know, how different parts of the country differ subtly from others um, in the last few years because I've been traveling a lot. But, I mean, I would say probably just Montana, you know, if I could, if I could pick one spot. I love it out there. So. All right. Well, that's a good, nice, relaxing place to, to finish the conversation in a nice, relaxing retirement in Montana in the wide open spaces. Beautiful. Christian, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. I, uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I love talking about uh, the geopolitics of furniture. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me on the uh, podcast today, Bill. And um, anytime you let me know and I'll be around to talk to you. So appreciate it. Thanks very much. And thank you all for being our guest on On the Record. Mm-hmm.